Gracious God, we want to thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together, to sing together, to worship together, to pray together. And now, Lord, we want to thank you that we have your word. And so we pray that as we delve deeply into it, that it would speak to us in a way that perhaps these passages haven't spoken to us before. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as you can see behind me, I think, well, not behind me, but earlier, there was a slide that was up, and on it, it says, People's Choice. Now, over the last month or so, in our bulletins, there have been little slips of paper, and even in our pastor's page, and in it, we asked, what is something that you want to hear spoken from from here? So what are some topics or some sermons that maybe you're wrestling with, or maybe it's just something you want to know about? And so I, I, I tallied them all up, and they were, you, you would be surp- or not surprised, but a lot of you wanted to hear about some of the same stuff. And so this Sabbath morning, we are actually beginning with part one of our People's Choice, and I believe it's going to go about nine weeks. All right, so there's all these different topics. It's, if you're not on our weekly email list, you can get on there and you can see which topics are coming up for the next nine weeks and in which order they're in. But this morning, I am actually going to be talking about something that several and probably most of you actually asked about, and that is relationships. Right now, when that first came up, I thought to myself, how do I preach one sermon about relationships? Because relationships are so broad. There are so many aspects to relationships. There's a difference between a marriage relationship and a dating relationship, a relationship with your brothers, with your parents, relationship with friends. Relationships are broad. And so I wasn't able to, to, to establish, like, how do we establish trust with people? How do we truly forgive? How do we grow in Christ together? Uh, how do we disagree without wanting to kill each other, right? These are all things that I would love to be able to get to. But what I realized is that we would need an entire sermon series on relationships, right? There are so many aspects, and so maybe in the, in the year to come, we will actually be looking at a series of what does it look like to honor God in all of our relationships. And so at first, I wasn't even going to touch the topic of relationships because it's just so broad. But in my daily reading, I came across Romans chapter 5. And once I came to that, I realized that I had to absolutely have a sermon on relationships. And so I want to start with this declarative statement. Okay, so I want you to listen. There is one underlying factor that shapes every single one of your relationships. Okay, listen up. Now, if you're having problems in any one of your relationships, I want you to listen to this. And if you're having no problems, I want you to listen to this because when you do have problems, this is going to help you out. So there is one underlying factor that runs below every single relationship, and this is it. Your relationship to God defines all of your other relationships. Let me say that one more time. Your relationship with God defines and will define every single relationship that you are in. Whether it's friendship, whether it's marriage, whether it's work relationship, whatever it is, your relationship to God will determine and define how you interact with every other relationship that you are in. And so I have this question in my notes, and I said, have you ever had problems in a relationship in your marriage, with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, with your parents, with your children, with your boss, with your co-workers, with your siblings, maybe even your best friend. How many of you have ever had problems in any of these relationships? Some of you are awesome because you've never had problems in those relationships. 
But the truth is, is that when we feel these kind of struggles or these problems in these relationships, what ends up happening is we feel estranged or distant or separated from that other person. It's almost like there's a barrier that is between us. And for some, in some of these relationships, it can feel extremely painful because this feeling of distance, it brings all sorts of uncertainty as to what the future holds for you. And if you've ever experienced this distance or this, this estrangement from another person, you'll know that it takes hold of every aspect of your life, right? If the single most important relationship in your life, whatever that may be, if there is a problem in it, what ends up happening is that it begins to taint and to distort all of the other relationships because there is one that defines all of us. For most people, it's your marriage, and if the marriage isn't going well, you know that it affects every other aspect of your life. Same thing if it's just somebody you're dating, or if maybe you're really close to your mom or to your dad, and you have a rift between the two of you, you realize that it begins to affect everything. So I would say this. We all have one most important relationship in our lives. There is one right now. You, you can think of it right now. And you know who that one most important relationship is with in your life. And you will know that if you are having a good relationship with that one person, life seems good. If everything is going well with that one most important relationship in your life, everything is great. But the moment that things kind of turn downward, it begins to, to kind of taint everything else that is around you. So the one most important relationship in your life should be with who? Your children? Your husband? Your wife? Your significant other? Should any of those be your most significant and most important relationship in your life? In my notes I wrote, no, 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 and no. Those are important relationships, right? Husbands, wives, significant others, children, best friends, those are all important and vital to our lives. But none of those should be the single most important relationship in your life. And I'm going to say it this way, and I think I have it up here in the notes. The one most important relationship in your life should be with who? Some of you are saying, like, duh. Of course, Pastor Dave, that's why we're here. We know that the single most important relationship in our lives must be with Jesus. The problem is that if we're honest with ourselves, for many of you, your single most important relationship probably isn't with Jesus. Now, I know some of you are thinking, that's what pastors are supposed to say, that we're supposed to have a relationship with Jesus. That's what pastors get paid to do. That's what they're supposed to do when they stand up every single Saturday morning or Sunday morning and they preach. They're supposed to tell us that Jesus should be our number one best friend. Or is it because somehow, intuitively, you understand that there is some truth behind that statement? Now, you know there is truth behind the statement that Jesus is the single most important relationship for one of two reasons. Either because you've experienced a relationship with Jesus firsthand and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or you've never experienced a relationship with Jesus and you know that something is missing in your life. Intuitively, deep down inside, we are programmed with a sense of, of knowing that there is more to life than just what is in front of us. I hope there's more to life than just what's in front of us. 
Because sometimes what's in front of us is horrible, it's painful, and we don't want to be a part of it. And so intuitively, I believe that God puts what the Bible calls the sense of eternity, this desire for that something more that nothing in this world can provide. And so you either know that Jesus is the single most important relationship in your life because you've experienced it, or because you've never experienced it, and you know that you are missing something. This morning, I want to share with you, not from some book of theology, right? I didn't read this morning's sermon somewhere and say, that's going to be a good sermon idea. I didn't get this idea from another sermon, but I'm telling you this from real life experience. This morning, I stand before you, not as your pastor, but as a fellow traveler in this world, knowing that the single most important relationship in my life has become Jesus. And it doesn't make me perfect. It doesn't even make me good. It just means that I draw all of my energy and all of my strength for everything I have to do, I draw it from Jesus. And I can tell you that if that is not the single most important relationship in your life, nothing else, you will never be able to feel the fullness or the abundance of Jesus' life. For a lot of people, your deepest and most important relationship isn't even to another person. Maybe it's to money. Maybe it's to success. Maybe it's to a career. But what you will find is that none of those things will make you feel fully alive. I'm telling you from experience, only Jesus, the the creator of all things, can make you feel truly alive. So I would say it this way. A life without Jesus as the center of your life is like drinking decaf coffee when regular is so much better. (laughs) You're going to like this one. A life without Jesus, let me just give you some ordinary examples, all right? Because we live in the ordinary, regular world, okay? So here's another example. A life without Jesus is like being an Oakland Raider fan when you could be a Denver Bronco fan. (laughs) Testify. (laughs) More specifically, in this community of faith, a life without Jesus is like being a Dodger fan when you have the angels just a few miles down the road. If you're a guest with us this morning, you probably think, I'm never coming back to this church. I promise you, come back. You'll love us at some point. Um, or this church is an angel fan church, so I, you know, I had to forsake my Yankees at some point. A life without Jesus is like settling for a career when God is actually giving you a calling. You see, a life without Jesus, as good as others might promise that it might be, is nothing compared to a life with Jesus. And if you've never experienced that, then this may sound crazy to you. And if you've never experienced then you say, well, this is why I don't like church, and this is why I don't like Christians, because they make statements like, a life with Jesus is better than any other life. But, but the truth is, is that it is actually true. And the reason we gather and the reason I've dedicated and given my life to God is to be able to invite everyone I have a chance to to experience this transforming relationship with Christ. There's a quote that I want to read to you that I've read before, and, and the life without Jesus is like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and in when Infinite joy is offered to us. 
It's like we're an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. For we are far too easily pleased. This is C.S. Lewis. In essence, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we settle for good enough because for whatever reason, we don't feel like we can actually get to the greatness and the abundance of life. And so what we end up doing is we give our lives to these lesser gods when what God is asking us is for us to trust him and allow him to give us the very best of everything. And I'm not saying you're going to be rich if you follow Jesus. I can testify to that. You're not going to have a lot of money. You're not going to have the biggest houses, maybe. But what you will get is a richness of life that nothing can ever compared to. The problem is that for so many of us, the single most important relationship isn't with Jesus, it's with so many other things. And here's a reason why I believe this to be true. When we get into relationships, we tend to get into relationships with people that we click with, that we have chemistry with, and we gravitate towards those kinds of people. But usually we enter into relationships because there is something that that other person is giving to us. Whether it's a feeling, whether it's a desire, whether it's passion, whatever it is, we enter into relationships because of something that other person can give to us. That's true. The problem with that is that when you enter into a relationship because that person can give you something, they may at some point stop giving, at which point then you will feel empty and as though the world is falling apart. If you evaluate your life right now and the single most important relationship to you is someone that makes you feel good, makes you feel happy, makes you feel all these things, I encourage you to reevaluate that relationship because I promise you that every single relationship you enter into at some point will let you down and not meet the expectations you have on them. That's just what happens in relationships. So what I would say is you would shift your attention from this one single most important relationship and shift it to Jesus. It doesn't mean you break up with that person unless, of course, you're in an unhealthy relationship and you shouldn't be with that person or it's an abusive relationship. That's a different story. But if you shift your attention and your time from that one single most important relationship that isn't Jesus, and if you shift it to Jesus, I guarantee you that this relationship will actually be better. It sounds counterintuitive, right? Well, if I'm spending my time developing a relationship with Jesus and not spending it with this person, how is this relationship going to get better? The truth is, is that's just part of what God does. It's part of the mystery of God. I can't explain to you exactly how it's going to happen. I can only assure you that it will. Because if you have a truly genuine relationship with Christ, it changes everything. Amen? Okay, so I'm sorry, I've gone for like 10 minutes and I haven't even opened up scripture. Um, So I promise you that if you follow this along with me, I'm going to go quickly, um, you will get just an enormous amount of blessing from the scripture this morning. So I'm going to start with Romans chapter 5. I'm going to show you from scripture what a truly good relationship looks like. And this is what it says. For the judgment that follows one trespass, death exercise dominion through that one. So if we have guests, let me explain this to you. The story in the Bible that begins the Bible is the story of Adam and Eve, right? It's the people that God creates in the beginning. And what we find is that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve do the one thing that God says to not do. They eat from a tree whose fruit was forbidden. 
So God says, you can have everything you want except for this one tree. And true to form, like anybody would, if they tell you you can't have that tree, what do you do? You go to it. It's beautiful. It looks good. We want it, so we try it. So what Paul is saying thousands of years later, he is saying that the judgment, the sin that Adam and Eve did, the judgment that was put on them actually was now put on the entire human race. So everyone after Adam, including you and I, are now cursed. We were born into a world where there is sin and where things aren't the way they should be. Are things always the way they should be? No. Because we're born into a world where it isn't as it's supposed to be and it is imperfect and there is sin all around. So here's what it says. For the judgment following one trespass, that one sin in the Garden of Eden, death, decay, destruction, it exercised dominion through that one. So here's where we, where we get to. If you've ever been in a relationship, whichever it is, and you feel like there is no more hope, you feel like this has been going bad for so long, I cannot even begin to imagine it getting any better. I remember how it used to be, and I remember how great it was back then, but for it to go back to that is impossible because too much stuff has happened in between then and now. That is death, decay, and destruction taking hold of you. And what ends up happening is for many of you, this begins to take on a whole new meaning because it begins to take over your entire life and your entire perspective. And for many people, we, we begin to take this kind of negative feeling of death is everywhere, destruction is everywhere. Another word we can use for it is being without hope. A lot of us, a lot of people, some of you here this morning are living in a world where there is no hope, where there is death, where there is destruction, where you feel like things are as bad as they're ever going to be, so the only solution I have is to run away and go somewhere else. That's because we're born into a world where things aren't the way they are supposed to. But thankfully, there is a second half to this verse. It says, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. So let me break that. I know, I know this is heavy theological language, and I apologize for that, but that's how the Bible is written, so I have to do the best I can with it. So it says, where death and the trespass, it exerted death and, destroy, uh, and destruction and decay. When that dominates you and we lose hope, the Bible tells us, though, that though that trespass exercised dominion over us, that there is a free gift that comes after all of that, and that free gift is grace, and it brings justification. How many of you have a job, and you have to show up every single day to prove that you are worthy of staying in that job? How many of you ever feel like you have to justify your existence by either what you do, what you wear, what you say? We live in a world where we feel like we have to justify ourselves to everyone. And yet what the Bible tells us is that you are already justified. The feeling that you have to prove yourself good enough or worthy enough or valuable enough, that's sin talking to you and trying to get into your head and tell you that you are not good enough, that you are not lovable, that you are not valuable. And yet what the Bible tells us is that Jesus justifies your existence which means that God gives you the freedom to live a life where you no longer have to prove your value, prove your worth, or prove your existence because God loves you for just the person that you are. 
I wonder how many of you here have been or are in relationships where you feel like you are having to prove your self-worth to that other person. And in some ways in relationships, we have to show the other person that we love them. But if you are trying to show them that you are valuable enough, then there is something that might be fundamentally wrong with that relationship. Because relationships are supposed to breed freedom and joy and peace. So let's go on. Are we lost yet or are you following along a little bit? Okay. If because of one man's trespass, Adam and Eve in the garden eating the fruit, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will it exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So, where once death, destruction, decay, when that took over your life and it dominated you, the second part of the verse teaches us, but God's grace and peace you will have in abundance. And it's a free gift. How, how do you earn a free gift? You don't. It's not a trick question. You don't. If something is free, we take as much of it as possible, right? There's something about when people say free food, we just go there. We don't even have to be a part of the group. Right? The key word is free. Everybody likes free stuff. We take junk that's free. Okay, wherever, free, we take, we take pamphlets that we don't even care about, but if it's free, we take it because that's how we are. And yet God's grace, God's gift of not just eternal life at some point in the future, but of experiencing the joy and the peace and the abundance of the life that Jesus has for you, he says that is free and that will dominate your life in a better and in a, in a stronger way than sin ever did. Surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, guess what? All that feeling of having to prove yourself, of having, you look at the sins you've committed, and you're just like, I'm a horrible, wretched man. And yet what Scripture tells us is that when God sees you, all he sees is a righteous person. To which I would ask, how many of you feel righteous after what you've done this week? How many of you feel righteous after what you did this morning? Or were you even thinking about 30 minutes ago? You see, that is sin and death and all of our past and our guilt getting into us. But what Jesus says is, I have put an end to that. You are worthy. You are valuable. You are lovable. And by the way, you are righteous. And my grace I have in abundance. And I will give to you freely as often as you need. How often? As often as you need. God's grace never runs out. We don't understand that because everything in our life runs out. We run out of life, right? We run out of money. We run out of gas. We run out of food. We run out of water. We run out of all sorts of stuff in our lives. And so all we are programmed to think is is of sin, of of decay, of destruction, of that one trespass. We are reminded of it daily. And yet what Jesus does is he breaks into this world and he says, you may run out of all sorts of stuff, but you will never, I will never run out of the abundance of my grace. Paul would go on to say that those, the more you sin, the more grace you get. Let Let me repeat that. The more you sin the more that God's grace abounds. Which means that, I know some of you are going to have a problem with this, but that's okay. If, <laughs> let's say I was saved, 
19, 1990s when I was baptized. I was like nine years old, I think. Um, it still sticks, even though I was nine years old. Let's say I was saved in 1990, and I've lived a, you know, for the next 20-some years of my life. I've done all sorts of questionable things. I've, done, I've committed all sorts of sins. I've done all sorts of things, and yet, in the process, God's grace has been abounding in my life for every single sin that I've committed. Now, we fast forward to June 22nd, not 2013, right? But if we step to tomorrow, I'm probably going to sin. And I'm probably going to sin every single day for the rest of my life. And guess what? God's grace abounds for me. So some of you, and I know this is what you're thinking, well, so does that mean that after we're saved, we can just go on sinning? Are, you, are some of you thinking that? You know what the answer to that is? Yes. But maybe we should reframe the question. Because, see, for some people, they say, you see, when you're saved, now your life has to change. I, I can accept that to a certain degree. But life change doesn't happen necessarily overnight, does it? So I would say this, that once I'm saved, if I continue to sin, will God's grace abound for me? And what we mean by God's grace is, will God, also, will God always forgive me? Will God give me a second chance? And the answer is yes. Because God's not trying to keep people out of eternal life. God is trying to get as many people into eternity as possible. And sometimes God has to be extremely patient with us. Now let's keep going because we're running out of time. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all, so Adam messed it up for all of you, and now you are condemned to live in this world of sin, of destruction, of decay, so also one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life of all. So where Adam messed it up for all of us, Jesus comes down thousands of years later, and it is through Jesus that we are given righteousness and you are justified and you are made worthy and valuable. And that lasts for all eternity. Therefore, since you are justified by faith, and all that means is do you accept that this is true? Some of you are having a hard time accepting this is true because of the stuff that you have done in your past. Some of you are, accept, are having a hard time accepting this because the stuff you've done in your past is leading to broken relationships today. And it might stay broken. And it may never be healed. But you are justified by the fact that you believe that what, this, that what Jesus has done is true. It says, since you are justified by faith, you have peace and God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom you have obtained access to this grace in which you stand. Grace upon grace upon grace is given to you, and Jesus is the giver, and he will never stop giving. You are justified. You are good enough. You are saved if only you will accept that this is true. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Your name would be there under the ungodly. While we were still weak at the right time, God died for me. Key word here is while you were still weak. Another place say, says we, while we were still unworthy. 
So does Jesus die for those who have it all together? Does Jesus die and give salvation to those who already are living a sinless life? Does Jesus die for those who have somehow earned it outside of God? No. Jesus dies for each one of us, even though we didn't have to earn it. And once you are saved, there is nothing you can do to keep salvation. Let me repeat that one more time. Once you have accepted Jesus into your life and you have experienced God's grace, there is nothing you can do to keep earning that salvation. Is that making sense to you? I know you're, some of you are having all sorts of problems with that. I know. I love it. It doesn't have to make sense to us. It's part of God's mystery. Because if we have been given something and we are given this gift of forgiveness, the idea is that then we have to change our lives in such a way so that we can show God that we have been thankful for his forgiveness. And so now we're going to live a certain kind of life that shows God that that we deserve this salvation. But that's not it at all because we'll fail miserably. Because there's nothing we can ever do to earn or keep God's salvation. That is God's free gift. And we don't have to like it, but it's still true. I think this is the last passage. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Here's what I want you to take away from this. Some of you are asking, I came here because on Facebook I saw that we were going to learn how to improve every single one of our relationships. I came to church because I was hoping, Pastor, that you would give me 10 steps as to how I can improve every single relationship in my life. Here's the problem. I can't really give you steps as to how to improve relationships in your life. I thought about it. I had a list, like be patient, be kind, right? All the fruits of the Spirit. I also thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when it talks about what does it mean to be love. It means you don't resent, you don't hold, you're not anger, angry. You don't keep record of wrongs. I thought about all those things, but I realized is that those are all surface things. That the only way for your, every single one of your relationships to be better is for you to have a relationship with the God to whom you don't have to prove your worth or your value. The only way to improve every single relationship to God is if you learn to develop a relationship with Jesus. That I can show you how to do. I can show you what it looks like to open your heart and surrender to Jesus every single morning. I can tell you what it's like to have this relationship with Jesus. I can show you how to do that. And if you want that, if some of you are saying, like, you know, I want that, I can show you. I will sit with you. And as a matter of fact, in the year 2014, there will be 14 people in this church, godly men and women of God, who this year have been working with Kurt and I as mentors so that they will help you to develop your relationship with Christ even better next year and beyond. Your church leaders are investing their every single day and they're investing time every few weeks and once a month
to learn how to be better mentors, to learn how to be better purveyors of God's grace, so that for those of you who say, I am missing that, I want that, they will walk alongside you and show you what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. Because we believe that if you have a relationship with Jesus, it changes everything. It changes everything because now you have peace in the midst of uncertainty. That now you have peace in the midst of storms. Jesus doesn't ask you to prove yourself to him. He just freely gives to you. And if you can understand that Jesus has reconciled you to him, that he has a place in his home for you, then your relationships all change. You know why? Because then you won't demand that that other person show you that they are worthy of you. Wait, does that make sense? If you understand that there is nothing that you've been able to do for God to love you and give you the abundant life and give you salvation, then you will stop having all these expectations on all of these other relationships. If you understand that God has forgiven you and is continuing to forgive you, you will have an easier time forgiving those who have hurt you. If you understand that God has been generous to you, you will be more generous to others. And what we find in the life of Jesus is that Jesus serves those people who are closest to him to the point of ultimately giving his life for us. You want your relationship to get better. Stop expecting them to change. Instead, begin by serving them. Now, some of you are thinking, like, that sounds like hell. Because you don't know what they've done. You don't know what they've said. You don't know how they treated me. To which I would reply, how have you treated Christ? What have you done against God? What are the words you have said that have been hurtful? You see, when Jesus' relationship, and I'm about to finish here, okay? So when Jesus' relationship When you fully understand that he has given freely to you, then you will learn to freely give to all those you are closest to, and you will stop expecting them to earn their worth. Because the truth is that most relationships fall apart when we begin to put certain expectations on other people that they will never meet. And that goes back to this selfish desire that each of us have and what compels us to enter into relationships. But Jesus doesn't model that. Instead, Jesus models us service, love, forgiveness, generosity. And if you are in a relationship where you're like, okay, I'll try that, there's no guarantee that it'll work. But your relationship to Jesus can never be swayed and should never be be influenced by your earthly relationships. We must continue to serve and love and be kind and be generous. And so there is one last passage here. And it says, Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The very best we can do and the best example we have of grace is that we continue to be kind and loving and generous and forgiving and serving in hopes that our relationships will change. And here it says that Jesus' kindness, his love for you, it's just meant for you to be, he's just giving you time to be able to see that that's the kind of life that we want to live, a life in connection with Christ. 
And so for some of you, Jesus is still waiting. And he will continue to wait. And he doesn't wait impatiently. But what does it say? God's kindness. So if you're expecting somebody else to change, as they say, kill them with kindness, in hopes that you will be able to share what Jesus has done for you to everyone else. God bless you.